Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Thais Hosha de Silva joins the show for a conversation about the former Egyptian urban center that contemporaries at the time called Akitatin, and in modern times is commonly referred to as Amarna. Dr. De Silva is a research fellow at Harris Manchester College, University of Oxford, based in the UK. She's also a departmental lecturer in the History Department at the University of Sao Paulo, based in Brazil. Her primary research is on domestic space in New Kingdom Egypt and household archaeology, and she is part of the Armana Project, which investigates the history and archaeology of Armana. And Dr. De Silva joins the show today from Sao Paulo in Brazil. Welcome to the show, Thais. Hello, everyone. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Thais. It's good to connect with you today. Great. So to create enough background and context, Thais, and then we'll work our way into the details in the conversation today, what was or is, depending how you approach the response, in contemporary times, my understanding, this urban center was called Akitatin, uh, more, more in present, present day, more commonly known as Amana. What is it? Well, um, El Amana is the modern name we give to uh, Akitatin, uh, the name of the ancient city founded by uh, Amenhotep IV, uh, most commonly known as Akhenaten. Uh, this this place uh, received his name uh, this name after uh, a tribe that created the site, uh, the Beni Amram tribe, uh, and then the, the name developed from from it and became Tel Amana. Uh, Amana is a, is a very important uh, Egyptian um, site in in modern times because mainly is the most uh, well-preserved uh, urban site. And we have you know, a huge variety of uh, domestic architecture, uh, temples, and which is quite rare to see this combination um, in a very preserved area, especially because mo- most of the settlements uh, were you know, constantly inhabited. So people had to change and uh, transform the landscape quite a lot. And we don't have that in Amman. The city was gradually abandoned, um, which gave us uh, a very uh, good picture of how people lived in the place. Okay, and you mentioned uh, Tela Amana as, as one of the, the, the names for it in modern t- more modern times. You also said Am- Amana. Is there, is there a, a, a difference? Can you um, ex- expand on what Tela Amana is? Well, the Tela Amana is usually the name we, we, we give uh, for like Tel sites, uh, which is this uh, Tel comes from this uh, Arabic word that um, if the if the mound is like a mound of, of land, uh, which suggests the um, reoccupation and accumulation of, of stuff. Uh, and the, the Tel is for uh, a funerary context. So uh, the idea uh, that we, we call the place Tel Amana is it, it derives from this uh, Arabic. Um, idea of you know people uh, reoccupying and re uh, remaining in the place 
Uh, so we, we, we abbreviate that to Amana, which is fine, is how archaeologists refer to. Okay. What uh, time period and what time period was it in operation? And and, yeah, so, and functional and and where and I want to I want to get in also in this uh, question and perhaps two two questions um, and where where is it located if you're to describe it on a, on a map? So um, Amana is in the province of Elmina, which is uh, roughly uh, um, between Cairo and, and Luxor, modern uh, Cairo and Luxor. So the the city was uh, established as um, an Akhenaten's vision of the new religion and political uh, reform he did uh, during the 18th dynasty. So the idea was to uh, have uh, a capital for this new uh, cultic activity, the, the new god he started um, worshipping. So the, the god Aten, uh, which is represented by the sun disk and so these new uh, religious, religious and political reforms uh, brought this um, massive uh, change, uh, like urban change, but also the, the change of the capital. So when, when Akhenaten founded uh, Amana around uh, 1346 BC, um, he had to plan very carefully the establishment of the city. So that, that project involved quite a lot of um, human resources. So we need you know, people to build the city, but also um, natural resources. So how to get the material to, to do it, how to um, make arrangements to establish the workforce. So it was a massive uh, enterprise. Uh, he need to, to engage. So the, the planning of the city was very carefully uh, done. So the idea that uh, Amana was established in this place, uh, in this uh, virgin area, let's put it this way, uh, was, was on purpose. So when you have uh, a temple in the city, like in Thebes, for example, uh, the, the local, the, the state god was worshipped there and the kings were always uh, making uh, extensions and renovations for the main temple. So that was a way to uh, keep the connection between the state, uh, the king, and, um, and the, the god. Let's um, imagine like the god Amun, for example, in Thebes. So when, when Akhenaten created this new capital, he was actually looking for a place that had no previous connection with no with another god. So he needed a place uh, that could be built out of nowhere uh, from scratch. And the choice of the, um, the location was, was, as I said, very carefully uh, planned. So he took uh, he considered very much the topography of the, the area. So he was looking for a place that could accommodate a large city uh, with its main um, buildings like temples, uh, the royal residency, but also the place, uh, a place where people could live. So we're talking about domestic uh, environment here, you know, uh, and this domestic structure, of course, demands um, food, um, water supply. So the, the topography was um, 
was carefully chosen. You, the, the region where Amarna was uh, is located uh, benefits from um, a big canal, which we call the Canal of Joseph. Um, and this place keeps the, the water flow uh, quite in, in good shape throughout the year. So we, we, we have a constant uh, irrigation to the west bank of the Nile, uh, where they could create uh, a good amount of agricultural land. And the city was established in the east bank of the Nile, uh, very close to the cliffs and covering quite a large area of uh, desertic land as well. So the, the landscape we have in Amarna is quite um, impressive because it combines um, areas that could be used for um, agriculture. Uh, they could have um, good ways to transport um, goods uh, in the Nile, for example, uh, stones for construction, uh, supplies, uh, the workforce, of course. And at the same time, um, the place where they established the, the main buildings uh, and the tombs and the royal tomb uh, that was carefully planned uh, along the landscape. You, you can imagine um, a place that uh, materializes Akhenaten's vision. So his main idea was to, as I said, uh, to keep, uh, to have a place for the sun disk and to have the house uh, of the gods in that area. So when he when he chose the the location of the royal tomb uh, and the, the the place of the, the main temples, um, he was taking into consideration uh, how the topography, how the landscape uh, could offer um, this sense of uh, enclosure, uh, but also uh, emulate the sun. Um, this rising from the horizon. So that's that's why we have the name Akhetaten, uh, the, the house of the, the horizon. So um, the, the place where he established um, the boundary still, uh, defining the boundaries of the city, the, the main extension of the city, uh, took into consideration this um, vision that the sun disk rise uh, every day on the east and you have the, the sun rays uh, stretching out on the landscape. Um, so the, the construction of Amarna uh, was very much emulating this uh, idea of you know, the, the sun uh, rising and stretching out uh, its rays. Uh, and this place um, was enclosed by the, the cliffs. So you have a kind of semicircle uh, landscape uh, that can be um, covered by, you know, the sun quite in a poetic and dramatic way. We can say things like that. Uh, so it was not a random choice. That was a very extensive and detailed answer. And you really uh, painted a picture of what um, it would have been like the topography and the landscape uh, in this period of time. Thank you, Thais. As a reference point for everybody, Professor Joyce Tildesley of the University of Manchester has been on the show a couple times in the past. One of the episodes was on Akhenaten, so the Egyptian pharaoh that Thais uh, mentioned a few times in, uh, in responses there. So that is findable online if um, anyone wants to 
uh, understand more about what scholars know about uh, who Akhenaten was in the life that he lived. What's known or inferred about um, what's known or inferred about the number of buildings that would have existed in this um, urban center? And is there any sense? And this might have to be a um, this might have to be notional as well. Is there a sense of how many people would have populated the the urban center? I'm trying to get a sense of how how large. Um, uh, uh, Akhetaten, Telamana, Amana was during the period of time that we're speak, speaking about and how much activity with people moving around there would have been. Um, Amana was um, a very, as I said, a very large uh, urban center and uh, we have uh, an estimative between 20,000 and 50,000 people who possibly lived there. Uh, the figures are, of course, um, not absolute, but uh, based on the number of houses and the distribution of you know, houses uh, around the space, we, we believe something around this, uh, these numbers. Uh, Amana was, was a very interesting project from an architectural point of view, because, of course, you, you cannot create a city out of nowhere uh, instantly, but was built quite uh, fast for uh, Egyptian standards at the time. And that happened because uh, Akhenaten had to, well, first he was in a rush to implement his idea, but also he uh, had to do some innovations from an architectural point of view. So using local material was um, something that very much determined the, the speed uh, the construction. So when he when he first established the, the boundaries of the city, um, the north and south boundary uh, with the boundary stila, uh, he was describing the, the let's say he was outlining his project of construction. So saying what he was doing first and why he was doing that. Uh, that can be um, Read uh, quite in detail in the the boundary the texts of the boundaries still we still have. Um, so when when he was um, bringing all these people to to Amana uh, to start the construction, uh, we can imagine, of course, uh, he had some priorities. So the main uh, buildings had to be established first and. This building, of course, was the, the house of Aten. So he established a shrine um, for the, the sun disk. And then from that, the construction of the temple started. And then uh, after that, the main uh, administrative buildings around the temple. And then uh, gradually, the large houses uh, or the, the main uh, staff so people who were very close to him uh, were uh, part of the, the royal court, uh, of course, the royal residences. And then uh, the, the small houses uh, were spread around uh, the landscape. So this took uh, some bit of time. Uh, we can imagine the, the city was uh, built uh, through uh, six, seven years uh, to establish like these main uh, buildings and then gradually uh, developed 
And what is interesting is to imagine that Amarna was, uh, was occupied for a short period of time. So we roughly uh, believe uh, something around 20 years. And this short occupation actually is, is really good for, for us uh, archaeologists because people abandoned the city after they after the king died um, gradually as well. Uh, so they were dismantling the main building. So we, we don't have, we don't know uh, a lot of the architecture because you know this, these places were uh, demolished and the stone blocks were transferred to teams, reused uh, for temples uh, and foundations of new buildings. And what we have um, from an archaeological point of view is a very uh, complex uh, snapshot of uh, how people lived. So Amana is a combination of a very careful uh, plan administrative center uh, and I'm talking about specifically temples and residential, uh, royal residential areas. Um, but when you look at the distribution of houses and how people actually engage and re rearrange their uh, space, that is very organic, very messy, uh, which is very interesting from um, a human point of view, because uh, although we, we try to plan our lives, uh, we don't live accord accordingly. Uh, we, we are much more creative especially when we are talking about, you know, houses and how we experience our very intimate um, domestic environment. So people have different arrangements. Um, but at the same time, what you can see from the landscape is a very clear uh, social structure. So when you look at the establishment of these uh, administrative buildings, the large houses and the, the smaller houses, what you see is a very uh, dynamic and complex social um, arrangement and, and social landscape. So you have people from different status uh, doing different things. It, it's, it's a very living, uh, a very lively place. Uh, so I, I find Amarna fascinating because uh, you can actually uh, grasp the, the noise, the, the sense of what could have been to live there. Uh, very packed uh, clusters of houses, uh, very narrow streets uh, arranged with um, parallel roads, uh, main roads for these uh, big administrative buildings. So it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very dynamic and rich place to investigate how, how people lived in ancient Egypt. You mentioned stone in one of your, your responses. What, what were the top three or four materials that show up that built Amana? If you were to think about it off the top of your head, the kind of the, 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 the most common materials, perhaps three, three or four, what, what comes to mind? So the, I think the first one is mud brick. Uh, we have amazing uh, structures made of mud brick, uh, especially houses. So they were, uh, of course, produced locally. Uh, people could um, work on their own residences. And we imagine the state gave uh, some supplies of uh, this material for construction. Um, 
And the other one is stone. Uh, we have quite a good amount of uh, local stones, so limestones um, produce uh, these small talata blocks, uh, and these um, small blocks of stones, they were very useful for speed up the construction of the, the main buildings. So we have uh, the temples, uh, the royal residences made of uh, these stones, these talapas blocks. And the domestic architecture was uh, mainly uh, based on uh, mud brick. And of course, we have uh, evidence of uh, timber, uh, people using quite a lot of wood to support structures, um, help um, the construction of uh, roofs. Um, and of course, this material they are not well preserved in, a, in the archaeological record, so wood can be very easily deteriorated. But if you look at mud brick and stone, uh, this is quite clear in the, in the architecture in Amana. Thank you for providing those details, Thais. Did Akhenaten build a primary royal palace for himself and his family? And if so, can you describe it a bit? So um, Akhenaten, as I said, he was trying to create this uh, house for the god, for the sun disk. So what we have in the, in the Amana landscape is a quite clear uh, organization of these uh, main buildings. So I'll just mention very briefly, we have in the central city, uh, the main administrative, religious and uh, the royal residences as well. So one of the, the important ones, uh, of course, is the Great Aten Temple, which is a massive uh, brick enclosure wall area um, with impressive um, distribution of um, offering tables and, and so on. The, the royal residence, we, we have two main structures. Uh, so the Great Palace, um, which is the modern name uh, we give, of course, uh, is a very large uh, building uh, and I would say around uh, 500 uh, meters long. Uh, and it's aligned with the, in the west side of the Royal Road. Um, so this uh, building uh, had a very um, clear connection with another building um, and on the other side of the road, close to the Nile, um, which uh, was the, the, the place for, for the king um, and his family. So this um, division uh, was on purpose, of course, so the people had to see the king uh, from time to time, it was part of the Akhenaten's project uh, that he would be the intermediate between the gods and the people. So uh, to be able to see the king um, uh, was a way to benefit from his royal uh, divine uh, connection with the, um, with the sun god. So the idea that the great palace was connected with the house of the king uh, by this uh, bridge uh, over the main street was a way to to actually uh, create opportunities to 
was a, was a performative uh, act of the king, so people could actually um, he, he could materialize his divine power in you know distributing his uh, gifts and his royal divine presence. Um, so the, the the position of the great palace, um, which is you know this um, massive um, building connected with the house of the king, the other side of the road. Uh, in which we can see, you know, gardens, um, amazing um, structures with pylons and um, public areas, uh, private rooms. So this, from this periodic, you know, daily uh, passage uh, through the bridge uh, could have been something, uh, quite a big show. <laughs> His court did, did, People within his court, did they live within the palace or did they live somewhere else? Uh, well, we, we have um, an interesting distribution of, um, of, of houses, of large houses. So that means that uh, his uh, family uh, and of course some of the uh, main staff could have been uh, with him in this uh, residence, in this royal residency. But the the main staff, like the, the high priest of the, the, the Aten Temple, uh, the overseers of constructions and etc., they all have uh, their own houses. And these houses were placed nearby the royal residency. So that was another way to plan the, the domestic landscape uh, of the city. So you have the king uh, in the very center of Amana with the temple and the, and the, the palaces. And then uh, close to that, uh, you had the main uh, staff with these amazing large houses, uh, very beautifully decorated, very spacious. And these people had their own staff so around these large houses, uh, we had clusters of small houses that belonged to uh, the servants, the, the staff of these uh, high officials. So it's, in, it's interesting how the, the material culture, uh, in a way, emulates the, the social structure in, in the city. Um, so if there's 20 to 50,000 people, can you speak about the other the other buildings? Um, and what I'm so is it is is it known if the majority of these people were they were, were they uh, developing the city, or would it have been a lot of different roles amongst the twenty to fifty thousand people, like like a, a lot of diversity in what they were doing on a on a daily basis? Why I why I'm wondering if if it was predominantly people building the city is it sounds like quite a large city relatively speaking for the period of time that we're speaking about got built you said um, within twenty years so so what yeah what's known about um, the what the the twenty to fifty thousand people what they were there to do and then can you bring in your response Thais. Uh, build the buildings that they would have lived at as you see as you see fit for that response yeah so the the social landscape in Amana was quite diverse um, if you imagine you have to move uh, a 
capital cities from one place to another, the amount of effort uh, and the amount of people you need to, to make this uh, change. So, um, as I said, Amana was built quite uh, fast, uh, and we have a workforce uh, dedicated to that. We have Egyptian sources that mention, uh, for example, prisoners of war or even members of uh, the army involved in construction. Uh, but of course, uh, the capital was not only uh, lived by people who built it. So you have um, quite a lot of different people involved in maintaining the main activities for, for living, let's say food production, also keeping the, the, the court um, with the, their, their necessities. So let's, let's imagine, for example, the people living around the king, so these high officials involved in administrative um, daily activities, they would require, of course, uh, quite a number of scribes. They would require uh, a number of people to uh, keep, uh, to, to, to be able to feed uh, the, the king, uh, to provide a lot of food for the offerings, the, the, the coats. Um, so this, uh, this scope of, you know, uh, food uh, supplies uh, also need to take into account um, the, the materials for um, for the religious activities and of course for, for the building of cemeteries, so uh, adornments, uh, clothes. Uh, so we, we have uh, quite a good amount of workshops in Amarna associated with domestic buildings that were producing statues, uh, amulets, um, pions, and glass material. Um, and this is this has been recently excavated by uh, Dr. Anna Hodgkinson. She's uh, working on uh, workshops uh, in Amana associated with a domestic environment. So the, the distribution of houses um, throughout the landscape um, mirror this uh, social diversity. So we have different sizes of houses, uh, also different arrangements of houses. So as I mentioned before, uh, we, we see in the landscape these high official elite houses distributed very close to the royal residences. And as, as much as you uh, go far from the main administrative buildings, you see a different um, landscape of domestic architecture. So very packed uh, places, uh, compact houses, and of course you need to mention uh, two important settlements uh, which are a bit far away from um, the, the city. Uh, two uh, settlements score were specifically built for a uh, workforce uh, close to the, the royal tombs. One of them is the workman's village and the other one is the stone village. Um, and we, we know these people were somehow involved in this uh, big building projects, uh, possibly the, the royal um, tomb building. Um, and, and they were uh, part of the social landscape in Amana. Um, what, what is interesting 
to me from uh, a domestic architecture point of view is how we see the distribution of houses uh, and the, the social um, distribution, but also the spatial distribution, very much connected uh, with uh, their own demands. So, of course, you have the, 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 the planning of the city by the king and the establishment of these big buildings, but people organize themselves uh, in order to attend their own needs, which is fascinating. So you have uh, you, you have the opportunity to see how they negotiated their uh, domestic environment within activities, uh, with their uh, working spaces, and you have an overlap of working spaces with living spaces, which is fascinating because, well, today we, we, in our Western society, we tend to separate this uh, much. Not anymore with the pandemic, people are working, most people are working from home. But uh, in Egypt, it was quite common to, to see this overlapping. Um, so people had to arrange their uh, daily routines and their spaces um, quite in a different way, uh, especially for small houses. So uh, you can't uh, possibly have uh, a specific room for each different activity so people had to you know move around and you have quite a lot of uh, mobile furniture as well that you can arrange uh, and rearrange in different parts of the houses um, and of course for the large buildings for the elite houses uh, we we have a much more um, structured um, distribution of activities they had more space to use and to benefit from that. You mentioned two villages. The first one I heard was, you called it the Workman Village. The second one I heard was, the way I heard it was Stone Village. Is that correct? Did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the Stone Village? So the Stone Village is a very uh, problematic, it, it is a very problematic uh, settlement because uh, we are not entirely sure uh, its function. So we know somehow they are connected, uh, these two settlements, the Stone Village and the Workman's Village. Um, and we, we have evidence for um, working stone in, in the place. So that's why it has the, the name. Uh, but we are not entirely sure its function. It's been recently excavated by the Amana project. And, there is a project uh, going on to study the pottery and uh, the evidence from the settlement, but we are not entirely sure if it's functioning. Probably uh, an extension of the, the workman's village. Um, it can be assumed uh, somehow they were uh, closer to the royal tombs and could be a, um, a, sta a station where, you know, the uh, workmen uh, would be, but we are not entirely sure. Was funerary, was there a cemetery or cemeteries within the city city proper, uh, outside of the city proper, or not at all? Yeah, we have, uh, so Mana is, is an interesting place also because of the, the cemeteries. Um, and one of the, the beautiful things uh, regarding funerary uh, archaeology is how the funerary landscape also mirrors the social structure of uh, 
the amount of people. So we have the um, the, the tombs of these high officials uh, distributed uh, along the cliffs. So they are rocket tombs, um, very high in the landscape, and and of course the they had you know the decoration um, very uh, well worked um, material there. Uh, always associated with the king so that these officials uh, close to the king and of course they were showing that in the, the tomb decoration as well but when you look at the the common people um the, the non-elite let's put in this very generic term um, we have a different landscape for the, the cemeteries so the amana project has been working on the cemeteries um in the recent years and uncovering uh, quite important evidence about people who lived in Amana um, and worked in Amana. So uh, the people who didn't have the privilege to have, you know, decorated, uh, well-carved uh, tombs, but they were part of the city. So they were uh, buried in much more um, simple poor uh, way uh, the, the the graves are um, on the desert and people probably uh, wrapped in mats uh, simply put uh, on the on the ground uh, with very few uh, funerary equipment and, and we need to bear in mind of course that the site was heavily looted uh, in the 20th century so we have um, many we have a very disturbed archaeological context both for cemeteries and for the domestic architecture which gives us a very imprecise um, picture of the place sometimes so although the city was well preserved uh, and recently very well excavated uh, with very modern and systematic uh, techniques uh, of recording uh, this um, looting, of course, compromised uh, the, the archaeological evidence quite a lot. The the buildings was it common for more than the ground floor? So is it common to have uh, a, a floor above the the ground floor? Can you speak a little bit about the height of the buildings? Yeah. So regarding houses, um, we have, uh, as I said, a very diverse uh, picture of architecture. So in the large houses, uh, I could mention a couple of them. We have, for example, the house of Panahesi, who was the, the, the high priest of the great Ajahn Temple. Uh, we have a very sophisticated um, construction with columns, and we can assume there was uh, more than one story for this house. Um, these structures, um, we, we can't have for sure the evidence for, let's say, a, a 3D uh, building, because what, what is left is very much um, the, the consequence of the, the collapse. So uh, when the house gets old, the, the first thing to collapse is the roof and then the walls. So the material for um, the material we, we have to understand these upper stories constructions are quite 
um, complicated from an archaeological point of view. We have evidence for uh, staircases in most of the houses, especially in these um, large houses. Uh, and But we don't know exactly how the structure for the roof or the upper stories um, was was developed. So we, we have some guesses, uh, we have some debate uh, within um, household archaeology in Amana. Um, and of course, we have evidence for that as well in smaller houses. So the taking the situation in the workman's village, for example, we assume there was a second story um, for the houses. They were very small. Uh, houses were very small. Um, around uh, five uh, or 10 meters uh, and divided in you know three main um, rooms and we have evidence for staircases so we assume because uh, they lack space for expanding the, the houses horizontally because the, the village was uh, surrounded by uh, an enclosure wall a brick wall uh, they had the chance to build uh, upper stories, but the, the archaeological picture for that is quite uh, clear. We don't know if all the houses uh, had um, roofs in the same way. Uh, we have positions of staircases uh, to different parts of the houses. Um, so it's quite um, uncertain. And, and I think this is one of the big challenges for domestic architecture, because uh, usually what we have is the, the plan of the house, uh, and we need to make a huge effort to, you know, reconstruct this place um, as, a, as a 3D space uh, that people could circulate, um, you know, go up and down, um, but the evidence is very problematic. Okay. Does anything show up in the archaeological records, Thais, in terms of commerce, buildings being used for commerce? And more specifically, do some of the buildings, what has come up on the show in the past is buildings being multi-purpose, so a residential unit also being used for commerce. So did, did that come up at all? in in the archaeological records where you can see a building and if one's fully commercial please identify it um but uh what what i'm what i'm what i'm wondering i guess more specifically is is if re certain residential buildings have been identified that it's clear to scholars that it, the building was used for both residential and commercial purposes um, yes, uh, we have, well, Amana is, is interesting for that because, as I said, we have this overlapping of working and living spaces. Uh, so I think the big example is the house of the sculpture uh, Moses, where the bust of Nefertiti was found. So we know these workshops um, operated uh, within the domestic environment. and. We, we imagine, we wonder if these uh, people were engaged somehow in this big um, trade network uh, to supply the court and the city uh, with important goods. So the, the statuary, I think it's, a, it's an interesting example of that and how 
the distribution of uh, activities uh, can be uh, spread all over the, the landscape. So you have uh, workshops for, uh, we have workshops for faience and glass uh, that probably were uh, connected with this, you know, statuary uh, production as well. Um, and I think this gives a picture of a very connected, uh, dynamic uh, domestic environment. So I we don't have like a separate building for, you know, just we don't have a supermarket for a Marta, for example, or uh, a gift shop, but uh, we have this overlapping, which uh, makes the, um, I would say it, it makes this social environment very interesting because uh, you have the, the family, let, let's imagine, you know, the, the people who lived in the house uh, very much engaged with these activities. But also you have for the, the bigger houses, the, um, uh, these ma massive workshops, we have a lot of people circulating. Um, so you, you have uh, people in charge of, you know, operating the fire, uh, people working with uh, cutting the stones, cutting the wood. So this um, diversity of uh, operations, uh, I think, makes the, the yeah brings us the picture of a very lively, uh, noisy um, place, which I find uh, quite interesting. Okay, so working our way towards wrapping up the conversation, Thais, more for the sake of time. This has been a very fascinating conversation you've provided a lot of information in, in under an hour um, for myself and everybody listening um, wa so water um, how close was Amana is or was Amana to the to the Nile and how did how did they get water um, the inhabitants how did they access water so this, this is a very uh, good question because uh, we have um, uh, different types of buildings in the, in the city. So we have uh, evidence for wells um, distributed along the, the landscape for uh, the large houses and of course for the, the main administrative uh, buildings. Uh, it's it's important to consider Amarna as um, in the east and west bank of the Nile because usually we we tend to focus on the east side uh, because that's the that's where the, the archaeological uh, remains are located uh, and we can't see the the evidence uh, in the west bank because it's all covered by um, agriculture today so we assume somehow um, that. Uh, water was uh, transported uh, in donkeys, uh, we, we know that, and in big jars for these faraway uh, settlements like Workman's Village and Stone Village. We have uh, a very nice survey uh, of these pottery uh, jars uh, with, you know, shirts broken uh, along the road, so we can trace actually the water routes uh, for these settlements. Uh, we have the wells and also we have irrigation uh, channels that provided um, water for the, the agricultural activities. Uh, and that, that was um, 
very much based on the, the topography uh, of the, the canal of Joseph, as I mentioned at the beginning. But I, I think the, the interesting um, situation concerning a water supply is how you get uh, the, the amount of water you need to keep uh, the city functioning. And by that, I mean not only the people, but uh, you need to consider the, the animals. Um, so we have quite a lot of evidence for pig pens uh, in Amana, all over the city and in the workman's village as well. Uh, we have uh, the gardens in the royal residences. We have, you know, artificial lakes. Um, and of course, we need uh, to make sure people are not um, uh, dying thirsty in their daily activities. Uh, so uh, this circulation of water uh, would demand quite a lot of effort and a huge amount of uh, resources to, to make the water circulate. Um, so we have the agricultural uh, lands in the, um, in the West Bank of the Nile and part of that also um, was uh, irrigated by canals and also the the east bank uh, we have some some extent to, to a certain extent this uh, irrigation uh, organized but also uh, you imagine the uh, you know people transporting water um, to settlements to houses how they would store that uh, and water is a very basic resource uh, we need especially in a hot place uh, like egypt uh, but you have um, a very nice uh, survey of pottery shirts uh, in in the Amarna uh, roads uh, that you can actually trace the water route. Uh, you know, people transporting uh, big water jars in um, dunk, with dunk case, uh, and of course this uh, activity. Uh, would uh, produce a lot of uh, broken jars and you can imagine a couple of accidents in the desert uh, with people being clumsy and breaking things uh, so you have you need a, a personnel to to keep the water um, supply functioning in the city so that it gets in the episode Thais and so that there's a there's a bookend to this conversation today. When and why did the occupation end in Amana? And is it is it believed that it was ever occupied again to a substantial degree, given that there probably would have been a lot of buildings there? Yeah, so um, Amana was, you know, built up. Uh, we have evidence for uh, occupation before that, but not a massive occupation uh, before the foundation of the city. Uh, and after the, the abandonment, um, we have a, a gradual uh, abandonment of the, the place. And we have evidence for some reuse um, of some buildings, especially in late periods. So some tombs, for example, were uh, transformed in um, uh, uh, Celtic uh, places for the Coptic monks um, that were in the area. Uh, but this reuse of the buildings, I mean, 
it's it's nothing comparable to what has existed there um and this is something we need to to take into account so like how this place was uh the capital of you know uh, egypt and then after uh was was not important uh to an extent that people were not going there uh, anymore massively. Um, the city was abandoned around, started being abandoned uh, around uh, 1332 uh, BC. And we still have evidence uh, of some occupation to the time of Tutankhamun, uh, some evidence in the workman's village and other um, evidence uh, from the time of Horenhab uh, in the city. So we, we know the, the city was uh, still there somehow and people were still going there. And we need to imagine as well that, you know, this abandonment uh, gradually done was, uh, was involving uh, a big effort uh, to dismantle the buildings as well. Uh, so the process of abandonment uh, is not like these people was just abducted, you know, and disappeared. Uh, but there was uh, some level of planning and what they were carrying with them uh, and what they were left, what they were leaving behind. So this is very important when we take into consideration the archaeological evidence. What is there is what people didn't want to have anymore, uh, or they couldn't carry you with them anymore. Uh, so how do we examine, how do we explore this uh, evidence that was left? Uh, I think it's still a big challenge. And it was future administrations that made the decision, whether one administration or more than one, after Akhenaten's life, that made the decision to have Amana no longer be a, a principal, um, a capital in, in Egypt, that's right? Yeah, so what happened is uh, when, when he died, uh, the, the cult of Amon uh, was reestablished. Uh, and we have that uh, described in the uh, restoration stila of Tutankhamun. Um, so the, the, the change of, you know, uh, religion and political focus was, was very clear uh, in the archaeological evidence and and Akhenaten became some sort of heretic king uh, and everything related to his name and to his image was uh, destroyed. We have this process of the nation memorial and what I find fascinating is that despite this, you know, uh, intended destruction of his uh, image, his name, uh, everything he was uh, associated with. We still have a lot of um, evidence of, of his reign and his family um, in, in the decoration. Um, in the uh, tombs, for example, um, in the, you know, these uh, high official tombs, we have some evidence uh, of this uh, decoration within uh, domestic architecture. So despite all that, uh, Akhenaten's uh, image was very stubborn uh, in the archaeological record because we have, we still have things to, to understand and to examine from his times. As a reference point for everyone listening as well, Dr. De Silva mentioned Tutankhamun um, a moment ago. The show has covered 
and explored what scholars know about that previous pharaoh's life. That was with Dr. Nikki Nielsen, also of the University of Manchester. So that's available online as well if um, uh, anyone listening wants to look up that episode. Okay, Thais, this has been a, a, a very fascinating conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And you provided, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of information in a uh, reasonably short period of time, under an hour. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So I will, everybody, drop links to some of Dr. De Silva's associated work in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Thais and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.